Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show, but you're going to have to reintroduce yourself to everyone out there listening. Thanks, Rob. It's good to be back. My name is Chris Gavaller. I am um, a comic scholar, comics theorist, superhero scholar. And I think today, Rob and I are going to talk about my most recent book, uh, The Comics Form. Your book discusses this, and it's been a long question for me, and I said I was going to surprise you with it as soon as we hit recording, but what is a comic? Because I don't think I truly understand the full definition of what a comic actually is. I keep thinking superheroes. I think that's what everybody thinks of, but it's a little bit deeper than that. Well, it's a whole bunch of stuff. So it's funny because in comic studies, it's you know an academic area, um, there is remarkably little agreement about the term that defines the whole thing. So many, many scholars... Um, have a whole range of different definitions. Some of them overlap well, some of them um, overlap partially, and some of them are really quite distinct. It's a mess. Um, it's not unique to comic studies, though. If you go into any area of um, academic study, the deeper you dig, the more nuanced things get, and then the less people agree. So it's actually a pretty common phenomenon. With um, with comics, uh, for a while now, a lot of scholars are saying, could we please stop arguing about this, um, which is a, a pretty reasonable um, position to take. What I've recently suggested is a solution that I think solves the problem. It's I think the problem has been that there's an assumption that comic means one thing, and then we have to all agree about it, um, which is never going to happen. What I've my approach is to recognize that there's actually more than one kind of definition because it's actually, we're not talking about the same things. We're talking about different things and using the same word. So I define two things. Comics can be called works in the comics form, or there can be works in the comics medium. And in many cases, they overlap, and that's why things are so confusing. Usually when we talk about comics, we're talking about works in the comics forms. So if you talk about a comic that's in a newspaper, Sunday Funny, if you're talking about a comic book, if you're talking about a graphic novel, um, those are all things that are published. Um, they have a historical context. They are comics because they're published by comics publishers and read by comics viewers. And there's not really that much. There's nothing particularly confusing about that. And that's probably what most people mean by comic. What gets weird, though, is when you look at something that's not been published in the, you know, the Sunday funnies or in a comic book or um, in a graphic novel, but it has all of the, or many of the same qualities. You'll have images, you'll have um, sequenced images, you'll have sometimes talk balloons, all the conventions or many of the conventions, but it's on, the, uh, on a wall in an art gallery. And then some people argue, well, that can't be a comic because it's not published as a comic. A comic book, for example, is something that has multiple copies and is distributed, and there are various ways of defining it. So what I'm suggesting is you've got works in the comics form, and I define that as absolutely as simply as possible, um, sequenced images. Um, sequenced images appear in the comics medium as well. So for the most part, there's just like a overwhelmingly large center of a Venn diagram. But you'll have some scholars actually talking about the medium and publication and the history of things. And you'll have other scholars talking about the formal aspects of the images. And it looks like they're talking to each other, but they're really just sort of disconnecting. So I've just come up with two things. You could call either one a comic if you want. I, at this point, <laughs> to avoid confusion, I'm avoiding the word comic, and I'll just talk about the comic form, 
or the comic medium I use. Uh, in that case, comic is, a, is an adjective. What do you think attracts people to the comic form or what you describe as the comic form? I mean, do you think it's the imagery? Do you think it's – I mean, I would base comics just anything that you find – I don't know, tells a story or gives you some type of, um, I think it, it being multifactorial is because you can pull so much out of the diverse world of what comic literature actually is. Yeah. So narrative is, is one of the common ways of defining comics. Um, the problem is you'll, it doesn't take long until you find something that's not a narrative, but it's still obviously a, uh, still a comic. So, um, uh, not well known as far as like, um, uh, comic books, but there's a variety. Uh, Miriam Lubicki, she's a um, comics, uh, she's a scholar too, artist, but she um, does memoir, but she also does uh, academic essays, but she does them as, as comic books. So like all the conventions of a comic book, she draws herself or a sort of a cartoon version of herself with talk bubbles and with panels and she's analyzing things and basically giving a lecture but it's a comic book, um, literally a comic book and published in the comics medium. Um, so that's an example of where it's not about the narrative. Um, you don't actually have to have a narrative. And there's um, uh, Andre uh, Molitoy is a particularly well-known um, scholar who looks at abstract comics. And so you've got pages of pages of non-representational images. It's just, you know, crazy shapes and curves and they don't represent characters. There's no speech. There's no action the way we normally think of action in a narrative. Um, so people would say, well, then, but those, it's also clearly an example of a comic. So when you get rid of narrative, other things still happen. Eventually things break down if you look at them enough. And it's just a matter of sequence. Is there an image followed by an image followed by an image? And if there is, I'd say it's in a comics form. Well, how would you direct people if they were going to start tackling the approach of reading a comic? Well, most comics are um, pretty straightforward. Um, the um, The approach is learned culturally. It's the same way we learn to read or watch films. Um, so it's very, very straightforward. It's for pleasure. And so the whole point is just to open up and have fun. Um, you know, we tend to, you know, our writing, the way we read text is left to right, top to bottom. And that's how um, uh, comic artists who are um, working with English language do the same thing. So it's um, just a matter of, um, it's not, this is actually a good point because uh, I think of it at this point as an intuitive process, but it's not. It's something you have to learn to do. Um, it's not. Yeah, it's it's literally learned the same way you learn anything else in our culture. And if you've, uh, I grew up with comics, so it feels quote unquote natural, but it's no more natural than reading. Um, I probably should have defined it more by like representing what the images represent to some, because you can pull out a lot from comics, uh, depending on what your definition is. And I feel like a lot of people kind of get like the, oh, it tells a cool story. It does it all for me, but there's a lot more to it. Um, there's a lot more underlying factors when it means what images represent, what the history of whatever it's representing, what the overall moral story is. When I had Peter Coogan on here, he was talking about how these representations of like uh, – he, he named some example that was about the Holocaust where certain figures were represented as this and certain figures were represented as like either it was a pig or it was this. And it 
really kind of boils down to he gave a heartfelt thing i wish i could remember in like a good 20 minute rant but it was something that was like yeah you don't see that if you're really just examining the comic it's like okay this is a story about animals and you shut it and throw it off but what about understanding deeper about what the comic actually means what the representation of it actually is and what the underlying factors that are there that a lot of people necessarily don't pick up because they just look at it like oh it's got my favorite superhero on or it's got this on and they just kind of flip through the pages and wait till the end it's going to uh, vary radically with every comic. Um, so, you know, I've done a lot of research on specifically superhero comics, and the um, the surface stories are fun. Some of them are really well told and well drawn, well drawn and are engaging. But if you, um, but in addition to that, if you know the history of superhero comics, you're going to know that a lot of that surface stuff unintentionally obscures a much more complicated um, history behind that. So, you know, and Pete Cook and I have chatted about this a lot. Um, you know, the superhero type is based on the KKK um, historically from 1914, which is not the original KKK, but a revised version that came about during the U.S. eugenics movement. Um, the idea of a masked uh, vigilante double identity character who, you know, it's fighting for what in 19 teens and 1920s were considered good. Eugenics um, movement was very popular. Uh, this romanticized um, vigilanteism and ultimately led to the superhero um, genre type. That's coded in those images that we look at now when we look at a Superman or a Batman, Spider-Man, whatever comic, uh, Ms. Marvel, whatever, um, that romanticized vigilante is still in the DNA of the character. And I guess that's true regardless of medium and, and form. So if you're watching a, a Marvel film, the character type of the superhero is still descended from, if not directly dependent on um, those old vigilante types. So that, though, is about cultural storytelling. So it's not about, it's not necessarily about the comics form, the fact that you've got images followed by image followed, followed by image, the fact that you can write a novel and you would still have the same history. You can watch a film and you still have that same cultural history. So it's not the form per se that encodes that cultural fact. But understanding that history would give you a greater respect and understanding of the comic, right? Hugely, yeah. So you're talking now about uh, a specific superhero genre. And so there's two things going. We're talking about genre and we're talking about form. Um, and the two of have traveled together so much that often people will think when you say comic, they'll just automatically think superhero. Um, and that's a reasonable association. But the form doesn't encode that vigilanteism. The genre encodes it, and the genre just has been overlaid consistently with the form. So le learning anything about the one is going to help you with the other. That's absolutely true. Now, is there certain things that can trigger? Like, obviously, if you know the history, like you just mentioned about, you know, the KKK roots of superheroism could be tracked with the KKK, you get to a point where if you talk about eugenics, that's going to trigger a lot of people. And I don't think people necessarily pick that up. That's why it's, it's from our talk. And then my talk with Peter has changed the way I examine comics. I mean, at least when I look at them now, where I'm kind of looking at underlying messages and certain things that could be 
based on my historical understanding of like COINTELPRO and a bunch of other programs and things of that that have been rooted in our government's history or just our nation's history, I kind of pick up things and people go, well, you're inserting too much into it. I'm like, well, I just think I have a deeper understanding and I'm not saying it's ruining the comic for me, but it makes me perceive it maybe differently than just if I had no knowledge on it coming out of high school looking at a comic book. Yeah, so when I first suggested the uh, connection to superheroes in the KKK and eugenics, um, it made some people um, uncomfortable. There was some pushback to that idea because I think it it can be misread um, as saying that therefore the superhero genre is bad and we should reject it and we should stop, you know, being um, reading and watching these these characters. I'm saying nothing of the sort. Um, I'm saying yes, please continue to enjoy the surface stories. Um, it's a rich universe that you can do so much wonderful things with it. But also, I think it's useful to know the history of, of that, the, that genre. I don't think having more information is <laughs> is ever a bad thing. It's not determining. It's not saying. It's not saying that because the origins of the superhero are racist, that does not mean that the current superhero character type, therefore, is racist. Not the argument, because it's not true. Um, it's interesting, because I was just writing an article about um, Ironheart, who's a, a Black female um, superhero that has a, you know, a sort of an Iron Man suit, um, uh, a, a spinoff of the original Iron Man character, Tony Stark. Um, I was writing about it, and it's a wonderful series. Um, Eve Ewing is the, is the author. I was looking at a, um, it's ongoing. I was looking back at a, from a few um, years ago. Um, they haven't made a series for that yet, have they? They have introduced her character. I think she was introduced in the second Black Panther film, briefly, um, Riri Williams. Um, so she's entered the MCU, but um, she has uh, more of a presence uh, in the comics right now. So the, the idea of a black woman superhero fundamentally goes against the, um, the original racist eugenics norms of, of the superhero genre. Um, and in one, in one, historically, you could say, well, that's a contradiction of its origins, and it is, and that's why it's wonderful. So you can, the genre has evolved radically over the decades. And what's interesting to me about the superhero character type is that it reflects the cultural norms of um, each decade or whatever period or whatever other place you want to look at. So the fact that the United States has changed radically since 100 years ago, where um, the level of racism was so overt and so deeply um, felt across the culture with Jim Crow laws, with, um, I mean, people don't, U.S. citizens, for the most part, don't even know the eugenics movement happened, that the United States was a major, major... Um, to be honest, they can't even tell you who John Lennon is, such as pretty well, sad that's too. fair, too. So, yeah, so that's just a, a general history thing. But, um, you know, but I remember when my kids were in um, high school and um, looking at their um, history textbooks, and it's like the eugenics history of the United States, gone, just not just not recorded, because it's um, it's disturbing, And but I think... Just like I was saying before, I don't think more information is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. It doesn't. I think some people see U.S. history as well. If we look too much at the really bad things, then it will make us feel bad, or it will it's somehow uncomfortable. Like, yeah, it is uncomfortable. But I don't know. If if you look at American history and you don't feel uncomfortable, then there's something deeply wrong with you. The point, though, is that it's not therefore because the United States terrible. 
U.S. citizens, white citizens, did terrible, terrible things a long time ago. Some of that's, you know, not just a long time ago. Everything's mixed. But my point is, the history doesn't define the present. Yeah. So if you're focused on the present and you and you feel very warmly about the United States, please continue to do that. However, don't use that as an excuse to say, well, I don't want to hear anything bad about the United States, so therefore I won't acknowledge our history. The history is there. It happened. Deal with it. And then do things now that are positive. There's no contradiction. More information is never a bad thing. I agree 100%. I mean, what do you think about history being taught through the comic form? I mean, I chalk up a lot of my educational, not experience, but at least interest into graphic universe comics. When I was in elementary school and they had them at my library and I learned all about the Mayans, the Aztecs, Hercules, it's my interest in Greek mythology. You know, I, I never thought that would even be considered comics because it wasn't in block, at least like 12 different blocks on one page. It was in a whole page, but in this comic art style that really kind of depicted it for me. I think that's a brilliant use of comics. So it's like I know that um, when I was um, I was a kid, I, I actually had a learning disability. I was having trouble learning to read. Um, I really liked comics. Um, I basically learned to read from superheroes. So I <laughs> I like comics. I think um, the idea of um, and I have seen them expand uh, significantly in elementary school. And there's more and more articles um, I've seen about using comics as a teaching tool. Um, from you know k-12 college and all sorts of levels um so it's an incredibly useful effective form that i would like to see applied in many as many places as possible it's expanding in the united states and other countries it's um has an even larger um presence i i, I recently saw a statistic that in uh, france one out of every four books published in france is what we'd call a comic book. Um, you know, manga um, readers in Japan are um, largely adults. It's it's a it's just culturally even um, more expansive than it is in the United States. And yeah, it's a great forum. It's great for kids. It's great for adults. You could it can be applied literally to any topic. It's just a really good forum. How difficult was it for you to be able to put it into a certain distinct category when you have all these branching? things that come together, whether it's genre or all these things you mentioned earlier, like how hard is it for you to be able to define it to a way to where people can examine it and be like, here's a way to look at this if you're looking at this? That's actually what my research, my writing has been focused on more in the most recent years is pulling apart what are the different things? Because you're right, you pick up a superhero comic book and it's just, it's in the comics medium. It's in the comics forum. It's in a specific genre. And then there's the histories of all those things. So for me, a lot of what my writing is about is just pulling apart those different threads, isolating them so you can talk about this is the history of the genre. This is the history of the medium. This is the history of the forum. And of course, those you you sort of pull them apart so you can talk about it, and then you wind them back together because it's still just the thing that it is it's um i think again bringing as many angles of analysis to something <laughs> to me this is fun um i you know i realize that you know i might sound like a um dry academic and that that's fine but i'm doing this because i'm enjoying myself this to me is pleasure. Um, I don't have to write books to, um, you know, I've got tenure um, at my school. I, I could I could stop analyzing comics right now and everything would be fine. I'm doing this because this is literally fun. It's a more intensive form of um, 
reading and, and looking at things. So do, I'm do just you know, enjoying myself. Do you know why the hero was represented in certain panel frames and why a villain might be represented in different panel frames? Like if they do a three shot where it shows like the main essential characters or it shows, I think Peter mentioned this, but it was like there's Captain America, Spider-Man, and then there could be another male superhero. But then when you have the women, it could be smaller panels at the bottom, certain types of tactics that focus. And I think there's a history to that, obviously, or a marketing tactic or something, but you really examine it from like, I don't know what it's trying to convey, what the underlying message would be. But when you, I th he told me it was like more of like a trying to show you the focus of like what they would consider prime characters or humans. And then, not, so I, maybe you can explain it better than I can. No. So what you're describing is that the, the visual form has ways of accenting things, emphasizing certain aspects and de-emphasizing others. And we as comics viewers might not even be aware that we're being influenced to see something as important and something as less important. Because the experience of reading a comic tends to be pretty quick. Your eyes go over it, you're looking at the words wherever they are, and then you turn the page. So if one character is in a larger panel, and then another character is in a smaller panel, and if the character is viewed from a further distance versus close up, Things that are close up, things that take up more space are experienced, at least subconsciously, as more important. Um, so just the shapes, or rather the sizes of panels, the sizes of figures, you know, like, so if you've got a, well, I'm literally in a panel right now. If, um, if I do this, I become visually less important because this is the center. And if I do this, I become way less important. If I do this, I become less important. If I'm drawn in a comic book like this, I become more important. Right now, our two images are next to each other on Zoom. I look more important than you do because it's a close-up. Well, stay like that because you are. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, these are all visual techniques of emphasis, centering um, images, um, foreground versus background, um, the drawing style, uh, can do it too. So for instance, if I were rendered in a very detailed manner, every line of my face is shown versus a style that sort of is more generic, less detailed, you put those two images together, the more detailed one is going to look more important. So uh, comics artists have so many formal systems for emphasizing something and de-emphasizing something else. Whereas the words could seem completely neutral whatever the topic might be. Um, but the fact that the drawings could be sending a different message than the words. And that to me is probably the key to um, comics. When you're reading just words on paper, just a text, you know, they're all more or less equal. Um, they're, you know, the fonts are all the same. Yeah. Um, the size of the words are all the same. There's nothing emphasized. But the images could be sending a completely different message um, that then warps the way you take in the words. So the, just the interaction of the two is one of the most interesting things about the form. Now, I don't know if you would know this, but is that like a westernized thing? Is there a different variation across countries? I mean, there's obviously split off between manga and then we talk about comic books, but I'm wondering how – when did it start to translate to the more Americanized version we kind of see today? Who was in charge? I mean, I don't have to ask you who's in charge of that, but is that just strictly a cultural thing? Is it just the way that we over here like to perceive our information, or is that across borders? Well, it's across borders, and then it's feeding each other. So the fact that – I mean, 
you could talk about some people would say comics are specifically U.S. comics, and you need to use different terms if you're going to talk about different cultures. So, you know, manga is manga, U.S. comics is U.S. comics. There are other terms for um, French and Belgian comics, and some people would argue each is a clear, is a distinct thing and should not be spoken of under the larger category of these are all comics. I get that. But there is so much cross-fertilization that, you know, these artists and readers are reading across um, national boundaries that I think it really does merge a great deal. And the early comics, certainly United States and um, United, uh, United Kingdom, a lot of things were happening in parallel. But I'd say all of these artists are being influenced by all of these different cultural um, artistic approaches. So I think there's just a massive mingling. Um, the medium took off in the United States with comic books in the 1930s. Um, but the precursor to that is many, many different countries, many, many different cultures. Would you look at our understanding of comics being influenced by certain individual characters, like people like Stanley and others that have kind of changed or maybe warped the way that we perceived comics 20, 30 years ago compared to what we might perceive them as now? Well, yeah, so Stan Lee was... Um, Just don't mention Scholastic. Peter couldn't stop talking about Scholastic. <laughs> Scholastic, yeah. So they're great for... Um, I mean, they they own the um, the school market, and so good for them. Um, you know, capitalism is everything. I know. used to go to their fairs, but I just bought like a Lamborghini poster, never bought a book. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, at the elementary school down the street here, both my kids would go to their book fairs. I think that's great. Um, but um, yeah, so Stan Lee, um, really interesting character. He was um, he was a really good businessman more than anything else. He was a salesman. Um, he one of the things he sold was the idea of his genius. Um, and he was a smart guy, so it wasn't like you know he was inventing it entirely. But um, he sold himself in Marvel as this genius, you know, well, super, super cultural shift. He actually only wrote comics for a small period of time, from like nineteen. All of the Marvel superheroes he created, he created between nineteen sixty one about 1964 and he had an incredible period of um, production then but his artists that he worked with um jack kirby um, steve ditko particularly they were the primary creators and not obviously artists but also writers of those stories stan lee <laughs> to be a writer at marvel comics in the 1960s let's say you wanted to apply for the job what you would be given you wouldn't be told like, well, come on with a plot, write a script. You would be given four pages from an issue of Fantastic Four that um, with the words missing. So all the talk, all the speech bubbles, the thought bubbles, the caption boxes, they'd all be empty and you'd be handed it. And your job was to fill in words. And then based on what, how well you filled in the words, you could get the job. That's not, tell <laughs> that's not <laughs> telling, I mean, so the artist, tells the story, decides everything that's going to happen. And like literally Stanley would just get the the pages from Ditko or from Kirby and he would just fill in the words. And that was his writing. He didn't write scripts. He didn't write plots. He didn't 
decide character, you know, so all the story, the narrative is in the artwork and he was just filling in, literally filling in words. Um, that's crazy. That's so, it's, it's so, cause half of those, some of the pages just say wham or like one word. It's an action. I'm like, you didn't even try on this one. Yeah. So Kirby would like write suggested dialogue uh, in, along the edges too, just to try to clarify if it wasn't obvious from the images, what was going on. Um, so, you know, that was the so-called um, Marvel method. Um, Stanley coined that. He didn't even invent that. That's his, that goes back decades. Um, but he would get so writers would get credit for being writer artists would get credit for being artists but the artists would have the artists are telling the story they are deciding they're making all of the narrative decisions but they wouldn't be compensated financially or otherwise for the work of writing so the word writing to stanley just meant almost literally writing. I mean, he didn't letter, he didn't actually hand letter the comics himself. That was a different artist, but um, it was just the idea of like, yeah, you just fill in words. Um, so Stanley really was a great salesman for his, um, you know, for comics and for his own like genius as he presented himself. But um, he was also um, someone who really <laughs> created an abusive professional relationship with artists. I don't think he, was as yeah, like you said, kind of. He wasn't really as creative as we like to give him the attribution for, or how society remembers him. Like I didn't know, but one of the people I've been getting interested with in history is Howard Hughes, and he was the inspiration basically for Tony Stark and Howard Stark. And I go, well, then you're not creative at all in those any of those characters besides the suit and the flying thing. But you can look at the Rocketeer and say that. But you really examine the lifestyle, the personality that really gives Tony Stark his flair that people like. That's like base. That's Howard Hughes, basically, besides the insanity part. Yeah, 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 yeah. That early character. Apparently, apparently, um, Stanley was. Well, he was annoyed at. um. <laughs> he wanted to create a character with with the Tony Stark who went against the norms of of comics. That was actually the thing that I give uh, Stanley credit is he broke norms in interesting ways. But he created Stark almost as a pushback against um, liberal um, condemnation of um, military industry. Industry. Um, he was like, "Oh no, I'm going to make the main character be a." arms manufacturer um because he, he at that point marvel was doing pretty well and he was just sort of like pushing the envelope a little bit but this is not like your standard hero type um but i will give i really will give stanley some uh, major credit here's the thing that changed superhero genre completely it was basically a dead genre um when uh stanley got the idea for the fantastic four and the fantastic for changed everything about superheroes in the golden age um the golden age of superheroes took off because of world war ii they were just superheroes were a proxy for the u.s military fighting um germany mainly um so you get this the absolute villains um super villains or your you know hitler and so that was a very simple universe all good versus all bad and that was what people wanted to consume during World War II. As soon as the United States starts um, winning World War II, the sales of superhero comics starts plummeting and then pretty much nosedives. And I think the genre would have been dead forever 
except for Fantastic Four. What Kurt, what um, what Stanley did, and he, DC was revising it, uh, revising as well, but I don't think it would have taken off. The original Fantastic Four, you've got four characters. The one that matters is the thing. This was later revised, but the thing was a bad guy. Stanley, in his original notes to Jack Kirby, said he's a thug, he's a villain. He just happens to be in the superhero group, and the rest of the group is trying to control him so he doesn't, you know, destroy things. He's a bad guy in a superhero group. That eventually, it only took like less than a year for Stanley to sort of revise that. That he's actually the thing is a good guy, you know, a heart of gold, but with a gruff exterior. But the reason the comic worked is because there was tension, not just between the good guys and the bad guys, which isn't really tension. There was tension within the good guy group, and that doesn't really happen in the golden age of comics for the most part. I would say the original Thing character evolved into Wolverine, evolved into sort of the anti-heroes that really have defined Marvel comics, and and I think DC at a certain point just became an imitation of Marvel um, because DC was the golden age. They had the Golden Age characters, but all of them, all of the characters just get more complicated because they there's internal conflict. So the thing suddenly is like trying to be a good guy. He's gruff, he's angry, but at the same time, he means well. And so you've got all this, you've just got internal characters suddenly, whereas the old characters were two-dimensional, just boring, flat, all good, boring, flat, all bad. Stan Lee gets my credit uh, i give him credit for actually revolutionizing the idea of the superhero into a complicated internally complicated character and that saved that saved superheroes because what was going on before that it would have petered out it, it would have petered out stanley created the contempt the modern superhero and all of the mcu many of them he co-created those characters but he inserted internal conflict into the character type and that to me is like the hugest thing he did what do you think about the purity aspect that was in comics for so long with with the idea of pure puritism or something where it had to be like they don't kill they don't do this they don't have any problems they have an enemy they have a foe it's one thing you can see it it's written on the page you could tell because he's wearing all black that's how you know he's the bad guy but now we have these internal conflicts we have this change we have these more emotional things i think now movies try to display more actual real world problems which is weird because you're watching a superhero film you're like i want to see somebody fly because i know i can't do it but now you're like i like seeing batman dealing with stress i like seeing batman dealing with oh he's in pain or he's hurt because he lost his family you know you're seeing more realism in the movies i haven't seen madam webb yet i've seen a lot of reviews saying it's bad but i'm gonna go see it because it sounds fantastic from what i've seen from the trailer plus i have a low bar for movies so it doesn't all someone <laughs> dies i'm in all good reasons yeah so what you just described is the, is the contemporary superhero that all derives from 1961 fantastic four all of it none of that existed before even superman and batman and again i think those characters dc came basically imitated marvel so if you look back at the original superman he wasn't distraught about the loss of his home you know the loss of krypton he was he was sort of a jokester he had no internal conflicts um everything came easy to him he was just uh he was almost a 
prankster sometimes very different character you look back at the original batman he did not experience angst because his parents were killed in an alley when he was 12 that was just a actually that origin story was thrown in um several months later because someone said why is it where did this guy why did he start doing this and so um the writer just threw something in it was just a it was almost irrelevant. Um, it was only after Marvel recreated the idea of the superheroes having an internal conflict that suddenly Batman starts getting angsty. Um, it, it reoriented the whole superhero universe um, around those ideas. And what we're seeing in the films now are just a, a further ramification of that change in 1961. Do you think it's interesting that there's a large draw for people to want to watch something specifically about the villain? For so long, the villains usually didn't have a whole lot of motive and needs and depth more to the character besides maybe a tiny backstory the Joker had that I can think of. But it seems like now we're getting like individual movies like Suicide Squad, despite it, whatever your feelings are about it. I thought both movies were fantastic. And just learning more about these characters and also learning that they're not really necessarily heroes, but they have the potential to be good, but they don't classify themselves as good. So, yeah, this is the flip side. This is the thing. You've just described the original Ben Grimm exactly. All of that is Ben Grimm 1961. That's it. Um, so if the good guy suddenly has some negative qualities, sort of like thermodynamics, the bad guy is going to evolve too. So it's like you, if you have old school, good guys all good, bad guys all bad. It's the simplest universe possible, right? But if you start changing one, you start changing the other. So go back to the first year of Fantastic Four, and the villains in those stories are sympathetic. Their first villain was the Mole Man. He was nothing like a Hitler who's just out to destroy. Well, it's interesting. Mole Man was out to destroy the world, but he wasn't doing it. He wasn't evil. His backstory was how he was um, uh, ostracized by humans, treated very, very badly, made fun of, and then he just because he was so sad and upset because he was physically ugly, he went off and accidentally discovered this underground world and became its, its leader of the mole man. So you read that story and it's like, oh, this is a guy who was really treated badly and unfairly. He is a victim. And then he became a supervillain. And at the end of that story, they don't punish him. They don't capture him. Uh, Reed intentionally lets him go and saying, oh, we should just let him go back to the underground and he'll leave us alone now. Um, so there wasn't even an idea of like punishment or anything like that. So the the sympathetic villain and the semi-unsympathetic uh, superhero, that has occurred at exactly the same moment. I'm telling you, 1961 Fantastic Four, it's all right there. Has there ever been another series or anything like the Fantastic Four that has had so much, I would say, impact or kind of things that can be drawn back to it? Or is it that just a specific isolated event? That was the turning point. And then after that, I'd say everything follows in that trajectory. So take Spider-Man. Um, now uh, Lee is working with Ditko. What was unique about Spider-Man is... Up until that point, the idea is that the superhero always wins. And Spider-Man always does beat the villain. But what they wrote into those stories, and again, I think this was at this point more Ditko than Lee, Spider-Man's personal life, the idea was that this guy never gets cut a break. Things always sort of fall apart for him. He's got problems. He's got 
personal problems that he keeps having to deal with and being a superhero is just one aspect of his difficult he has a difficult life whereas like you know batman he was a millionaire he just hung out in his mansion he had no personal problems whatsoever so i think with the thing that was just sort of it wasn't an isolated incident it was a door that opened and then everything that followed went in that direction this is a little bit different than our current discussion but what is an image narrator and a text narrator. I meant to ask you this earlier, but we yeah, went yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. So those are terms that I came up with just because I'm trying to be as um just trying to come up with terms that are clear. So okay, so you're reading a comic book and you've got the words in the caption boxes. And you can include in dialogue and thoughts as well. And then you have just the images. I would say the text narrator is in charge of the words and the image narrator is in charge of the images trying to be as straightforward and obvious as possible. The reason I'm saying using different words to describe them is because they can contradict each other. So you could be reading the words and it's telling one story, but if you looked at just the images, sometimes it tells a slightly different story. It emphasizes different things. Oh, so when we were talking earlier about um, like, you know, if you want to emphasize something or if you want to de-emphasize something and it's in various ways, <laughs> The image narrator is doing that. So if I am telling, if I'm a character in a comic book and you'd have my speech balloon and I'm saying whatever I'm saying, you would, my character would be less convincing if drawn like this. Yeah. You'd have the same words. So the text narrator would be doing the same thing. But if my character is drawn, if the image narrator draws me centered and forward, I become more important but the text might not be reflecting that. So you just have two ways of telling stories that occur simultaneously. Image is doing one thing, text is doing something. Sometimes they align and they're telling the same story. Sometimes they fall out of sync. Um, so an example, actually, since I was talking about Fantastic Four, this is in my head. In the original um, episode, uh, the Human Torch catches a forest on fire. Um, and and um, Kirby draws it with all the characters looking at it, and it looks like a huge, huge, you know, um, looks like the whole forest is going to burn down. Stan Lee, when he got those images, was like, oh, well, that that's not good. So he had to, himself the text narrator write, and I'm paraphrasing, and they watched as the little brush fire dwindled to nothing. And I'm like, if you look at the image, it's like, that's not going to dwindle to nothing. That could wipe out a city. But like, so Stanley's like, well, we wouldn't want to create that impression. So he added words that contradicted the image. So the text narrator is saying, it's a little fire and it's about to go out. The image narrator is like, call the fire department. We've got a huge problem here. So the two don't make sense together. But interestingly, I think we have a tendency to privilege the words over the image. And so often... Even though they contradict, we're like, oh, yeah, it's just a fire. It's dwindling out now. There's no problem. Even though the image is saying almost the exact opposite. Like a rough draft versus a final copy. Except they exist simultaneously yeah. together. So it's like the image. Yeah, that literally is what it was. So Kirby wrote the first draft of that issue, and he wasn't concerned about how big the fire was. Lee then added his words and revised the meaning of the image by adding the words that contradicted them. 
So yeah, what was the first draft, second draft? Does that mean that 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 they have significant importance in their job to the role of the comic then? Because I mean, we mentioned the way it kind of emphasizes and de-emphasizes depending on where the image is drawn, which we are subconsciously, I think a child just knows that if it's bigger, that's probably more important. But then we use the words as our final say, even if it might contradict the image, which makes it kind of more complicated to understand. I mean, you could probably tell two different stories if you blocked out the words compared to if you blocked out the image. Exactly. And we as um, comic book readers and viewers, we do this all at a level that we're not really, we're not, we're sub, this is happening subconsciously. So like as a, as a scholar, I slow the whole thing down and look very carefully and then check, wait, are these lining up or what's actually happening here? So yeah. Yeah. They're, the artist is, um, it's, it's another way in which Lee was able to control his artists um, because they're doing the vast majority of the work, but then he could come in with the text and change the meaning of the image um, by just adding words to it that don't align with it. So yeah, it really, and that's why I came up with the terms, two separate terms, image narrator, text narrator, just to really clarify, these two things are happening independently. We absorb them simultaneously, but they're actually really very, very different. It's weird because if you look at a business relationship or a way that maybe coworkers might work together, you would want great simpatico, but in this, it would not matter because whoever the writer really is could really have the final say. And honestly, they're both telling their own independent stories. Technically, if he examined it, if the words don't match up. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's, that's one of my main arguments for analysis treated as two different things and that they just sort of happen simultaneously, but it, Think of them as just separate because our brains automatically just unify everything. So pull them apart and see what each one's doing separately. That's that's one of my main approaches for analysis. Was there ever – I mean, sure, it's, there's probably many areas that you'd like to cover, but was there an area that you felt like you just didn't get a well enough understanding on or something that's a little bit complex to you when it comes to comics and understanding the art form? Yeah, um, so – after um, publishing the comics forum, I'm working on a next book that's going into, um, I'm still doing the very close visual analysis. That's just what I enjoy most, um, really breaking apart the images. Um, and I'm now applying it to the representation of race. So the book I'm currently working on is going to be called The Color of Paper Representing Race in the Comics Medium. And so I'm looking at racial whiteness but also literal whiteness and how those two things literally overlap in the comics medium so i'm taking the visual analysis approaches that i developed in this book and, and applying them to race and i'm in that process and i'm learning a lot as i'm doing it and we'll, we'll see where it goes what do you think about the old style noir comics the ones that are probably going to be making a comeback because they got the Spider-Man noir that apparently they're making a live action with Nick Cage. I hope it happens. I love seeing that man in every film he signs up for. So Nick Cage as Spider-Man? You've never seen – have you ever seen Spider-Verse? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, of course, of course. Right, right. He plays that uh, 
that thing. So they want to do a live action that Nick Cage said he was in on doing. Because he's only going to make four more movies or something. But he talked about, yeah, if that, he can play Spider-Man. I'm like, good. He can't rock Superman. They already gave him that opportunity for 10 seconds in The Flash. But let's get him in a Spider-Man. That'd be amazing. But it's all noir. And I'm like, I hope this brings a comeback of noir films. Because that's like something that's completely just dived out of our culture. That's really funny. Um, no, I hadn't heard of that. Uh, that. Yeah, he's done. Um, Cage is a funny actor. Um, My favorite. Okay, I, I I like him sometimes, not so much. Other I just time. love it because any script that goes on his desk, he's like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> he's yeah, he's an interesting guy. I hope that happens. That sounds like fun. I thought the Spider Verse was those. Um, I guess it's three. The third one's not out yet, right? No, um, it's just two right now. Yeah, and in the second part of the second film, I thought they were brilliant. I think they're the best thing that the um, that Marvel. Well, I guess it's not Marvel; it's actually um, Sony. Um, uh, but whatever. Um, as far as superhero films go, I think they're the high mark. They just um, impressed the hell out of me. There's so much fun um, when I watch live action films. Well. Even calling them live action films, I think, is is a, a problem. CGI has so completely taken over the film genre. And CGI is it's it's a cartoon. It's just a photorealistic cartoon. And I think it makes just the most boring choices possible. With the um with the Spider-Verse films, they're so playful visually. They are not trying to draw people in a way so that it looks like people you know, like they're not trying to imitate photography they're every frame at times felt like it was doing something completely different the quote-unquote camera would make such interesting choices that just the the drawing styles would change for each character in each scene it was just it was wonderfully chaotic incredibly playful and to me that's like yeah that's what comics should be this is what that's exactly the kind of movie I want them to be making. There was something that wasn't explained until the second one, but if you rewatch the first one, there's a moment where the Peter from another world meets uh, Miles from his world, and they're both looking at each other, and they're kind of like going like that, like flinching. One has spider sense, and the other one, you notice it's green and purple, which is the villain character who, I, I don't know if you've seen it, in the second one, but it cuts out and goes immediately to the Spider-Man version because the Spider-Man version of Miles takes over, and it's his spidey sense that wins out of his instinct ability of being this villain art character that's exploded in the first one. And like you you see that, and you're like, oh my god. Like, But those camera, those little scenes that scene took five months to draw up and do the whole thing with five different writers and it was only what a couple minutes long that's fascinating yeah and so yeah. And for me i have a bigger appreciation of the art form because i'm watching that i'm like this movie might have taken however long years to make or something like that but they had a whole team that was working on this trying to make everything the way this is this so for me i'll sit and watch it on the basis of that and then it's a good story too and it's good art so it's like when yeah, we're... the art, I think, is just so much fun. So actually, you gave a really good example of how images tell stories in a way differently than words tell stories. So like if that happened in a comic, you would have fewer images necessarily, obviously, like six per page. You could, But you could still tell the story because you said the key was the purple and green color choices. So the color artist told us things. And we only know them because we have an experience of reading other comics and we know green and purple have certain meanings. 
and it's true. I mean, this goes back to the um, earliest colorists of, from Superman. Red it's the and Hulk. blue. His shorts were yeah. purple, and he was green. Yeah, I know it's funny. Um, red and blue were originally the good guy colors, and purple and green were the bad guy colors. That goes, but that that was deep rooted into the genre. So playing with that fact, and you know, so contrasting colors and the color combinations. That's um, there. Uh, artistic traditions in the medium that just play with those for decades and decades. So clearly that um, the moment you were just referenced is playing on that older tradition. And it's not that obviously the colors green and purple, there's nothing villainous about them, right? I mean, it's just colors. But the fact that, um, you know, if you are, um, the more uh, experience you have with the genre conventions, the more storytelling opportunities the artist has at their disposal. Um, and that's a great example of using that. You saw Endgame, right? Uh, oh, yeah. So when there's a scene, and I didn't know this until my comic buddy uh, pointed it out to me, but there's a scene when uh, Tony's trying to stop Thanos on his home world from, or it might be the ending from destroying, uh, obviously, everything again, snapping his fingers again. And when he grabs Tony, grabs him like this, like by his waist, and that's when Thor had thrown his hammer, and it hits Tony, and he knocks him, Tony out, and Tony's lying in the back. My buddy goes, yeah, you know what I was afraid of in that moment? And I said, what? He goes, he was going to rip Iron Man in half. And he put up a video on his page. It shows in the comic when Thanos grabbed him like that, he ripped him in half. But in the movie, they threw the hammer and knocked Iron Man off to the side instead of ripping him in half. Which makes me think, I'm like, I would not have known if there wasn't someone that pointed to that and found that exact thing from a comic and thrown that in there. But, I mean, what are your thoughts on the multiverse? Just a little side question. It opens up the I think it's a way to get rid of all these actors who get into scandals, to be honest with you. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's working for them, though. Yeah, I will answer that question. Let me go with your last one, though, because I just think it's um, that's one of the things that's interesting about the um, MCU is that they have such a deep, deep, rich um, history of stories that they're able to just draw from so many different moments. And I think that's actually worked incredibly well for them because they're not just obviously they're inventing new things, but they're there's so many back references to previous stories that they incorporate in. I would say overall, really effective ways. So I just think that's a that's a great example. There's every every image is an is an echo of an earlier image. The multiverse. Um, oh, I don't know. I mean, I like the I, I like multiverse stories. I actually, yeah, uh, working on another project about multiverses. They're um they're fun. Um, obviously, they open up every possibility. Literally every possibility. The uh, the history of multiverses in the comics is kind of funny because um, DC started it um, when they rebooted the Flash and then brought it and then they um, rebooted the uh, Green um, Green Lantern. This is like late 1950s, and then and then they created the Justice League. And someone at some point said, "But these characters used to exist." like 20 years ago but they're different how is that possible and then someone invented the idea of like oh that happened on another world and then once they have the idea that there are two worlds inevitably one writer is like well let's have them travel between worlds and that created the multiverse and then they just kept adding worlds and worlds and worlds and by the 1980s no one could track what the hell was going on because they would travel between worlds and you'd have this version and that version of different characters. And it just got too confusing for the writers and for more importantly for the readers. So that's when they collapsed their universe and created one world. But then DC, every time they reboot and create one world, the multi multiverse tends to grow back. The writers just can't resist the idea. 
Marvel kept up their multiverse, oh gosh, until like the, um, really, I think maybe it was like about 10 years ago, maybe it was around 2016, they um, collapsed their multiverse into one world, which is funny because they did it because they wanted the comics to be closer to the MCU. And now after the comics collapsed their multiverse, the MCU is creating a multiverse. So it's sort of like, wait, what just happened? You were, you did that for the sales purposes of not confusing your readers, and now um, everyone expects a multiverse. So it's it's a it's always a um, I find pleasantly complicated, unbelievably messy um, writing approach that I'm I'm glad you're playing around with it. It's a dangerous tango between the comic culture and the world of capitalism. I think when you open up that door of like, hey, we're going to have infinite possibilities if we open up the multiverse, and then it becomes too much to handle, where it's like, how do we market this correctly without destroying the original base product? And then they have to try and find a way to sew that up. Like, I'm still waiting on a Static Shock movie, but if you were going to create Static Shock and then be like, let me toss Iron Man in here. Let me tell us, well, Iron Man's dead. Well, it's going to be a multiverse. Well, then what happens if I want to do a connected movie with that superhero and the big ones? Then we're never going to have that. But what are your thoughts on just the comic history of, like, counterculture and capitalism? I mean, has there ever really been a focus towards primarily focusing on supporting capitalism compared to maybe attacking capitalism? And does that come from another movement? I don't know if you would know that answer, but it's just an interest of mine. I, so when I referred to the comics medium early on, earlier on, the medium is about consumer products. They're selling something to make money. So the comics medium is to its core um, capitalism. Uh, it exists solely for the purpose of profit, there's literally nothing else going on. Just making originally comics made their money by selling ad space within the comic. Um, that's changed. Um, comics now are like a very minor element of Marvel. Marvel is making gazillions, or I guess DC is making gazillions on their other products. And the um, comics line is a very, very small one, mostly used as a um something to plunder for story ideas for the other products. The comics are really very, very small, but um, but it's all capitalism. Um, you know, what can I say? It's all capitalism. It's all about making money. None of these things, ex none of these characters would exist without the goal of making money. <laughs> so that's, that's why Stanley did everything that he did. It's just finances. I know that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't but that's true. But I mean, that's true. That's of the world. Almost. Yeah, exactly. That's not a negative thing. I mean, it's just it just is. Yeah, we in a, these are consumer products in a capitalist universe, and we're we're purchasing them for our entertainment, and they're made for our entertainment. So we'll give money to other people. Um, yeah, that's not that's that's not news, right? That's not a spoiler alert at all. Now, uh, Chris, you've given me enough of your time, man, and I really appreciate you giving me the time again to talk on my show about um, a little bit about your new book and a little bit about comic culture. Um, I like learning. I like talking about it because you realize how, I guess, diverse it is or in-depth it can really go. But is there a place where people can find any of your links? If you got social media handles, if you got any websites to any of your books, I'll put your Amazon link in there. Sounds great. Yeah, um, if you just Google my name, I have an unusual last name, so if you Google Chris Cavallari, you're going to find specifically me. Um, and I have a, um, I, um, I blog every week at a, my personal blog is called the patron saint of superheroes, uh, WordPress. I'll make sure I link all those links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of out of the blank. Stay tuned for next episode.